0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at All Indiana Podcast Network.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host, a public meeting let leaders and legends llc be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message please contact chris spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net i thought i'd have to choose between an it degree and certifications until i found wgu there i earned both through one program WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at wgu.edu.
1: Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without for all the resources you need this election season and beyond visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash I N that's pro.stateaffairs.com slash I N. Thank
0: you for joining us on the leaders and legends podcast. Our guest today is someone I always wanted to be, so much so that when I joined the Army in 1987, I was a broadcast journalist. That was my job because I wanted to be Roger Harvey. Roger, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Great to be here. You almost sound convincing when you say that, Robert.
0: Well, if I did, if I limited my podcast guests just to people who wanted to be Roger Harvey, I would have an <laughs> unlimited supply. Of suspects uh, and subjects. You're one of the absolute best at what you do. Roger is a public affairs guru at Bose Public Affairs Group. Uh, there simply is nobody better at what I do than Roger Harvey, and I'm thrilled to talk
1: to you. Well, thank you, Robert. It's great to be here, and uh, you do a tremendous job as well. I know a lot of times when we get together, we have interesting conversations about <laughs> some of the issues uh, we're dealing with with clients, but it <laughs> keeps us. Uh, Interesting, right?
0: Well, uh, you actually, when did you get to WTHR? We're going to go back to where you grew up and and how you got into broadcast journalism and why you and I are still Miami Dolphins fans after all these years of misery. We're in Uh, therapy for that, yes. When did you get to THR?
1: So I came to THR to Indianapolis uh, back in 1995. Actually, it was the end of the year of 1995. And um,
0: I ask is because one of my uh, instructors at the Defense Information School uh, worked
1: part time for THR, Jerry Lambert. Okay, I know the name. Yeah, yeah. I was real close to. um, In fact, I was in Richmond, Virginia at the time, and was pack, literally packing up, and I was moving to Philadelphia. Um, Had an opportunity there, and my agent called and said, "Have you FedEx that contract yet?" And I said, "No," and he said. Don't send it. And I said, what do you mean don't send it? (laughs) He said, you got to go talk to the station in Indianapolis. It's family owned. They do tremendous work. You know, they're going to send you everywhere. And I said, Indianapolis. And they said, yeah. I said, well, I knew there was a car race, but that's all I knew. And long story short, I came out here and the rest is history. Did you ever kind of, I mean, Philadelphia is a big market.
0: It's close to a lot of action. It's got a lot of uh, issues, for lack of a better term. Did you ever kind of was like, man, did I make the right decision?
1: No, I mean, you know, at first, obviously, you're looking at size of markets. And Philadelphia, you know, is a huge market. I think at the time they were four, number four. And um, I'd already picked a place out on the main line, uh, not far from Villanova, which is near where the TV stations are there. And um, so I came here, it's a a 20 size market. And, uh, but the opportunity was because it was family owned. And, you know, that's a big deal, because they spend the resources when it's, when it's a a privately owned television station. And they were going to send me wherever I wanted to go in terms of covering big stories. And so that excited me. And that's the reason why I came here.
0: How quickly after you came here, did you visit the Indianapolis
1: Motor Speedway? It was fairly uh, soon after I was here. I think when I actually, when I came here the first day, so that's another thing too, is, you know, you start and it's like, go do a story. You know, there was no, there was no, they call it, consultants call it onboarding. No, there was none of that. It was like, you know how to do a story, go do a story. And the Colts were in the playoffs back then. Um, and it was a big deal uh, back in that 95, 96 season. They had a they had a couple of really big years, if you remember. The Harbaugh um, years, correct? Yeah on the road in Kansas city. And I think they were in Pittsburgh on the road. It was a couple of exciting, uh, big playoff games.
0: As I recall, that was also one of the years that uh, Marino threw the interception to Entman who ran the ball all the way back for a touchdown. I was working as the night manager at the holiday airport. Okay. I, w- I was in a room. I threw the remote out of the room. It landed in the pool and my friends on the east side, because they're complete and total dicks, called the switchboard for 30 consecutive minutes. Finally, the, the switchboard operator goes, you're just going to have to trade places with me and take these calls because I can't I can't handle it anymore. I'm like, what's the problem? He goes, all they're doing is
1: calling and saying dolphins and hanging up. Very nice. If, if I'd have known you then, I probably would have been one of those, those 30, <laughs> except I would have been commiserating with you because I remember that. And we've, we've had some some lean years, uh, as dolphin fans.
0: Do you think that Indianapolis is, is underrated as a news market that, you know, there's that famous New Yorker cartoon where it's basically New York city and then it's takes up 90% of the map and then the rest is
1: 10%. But
0: is there a little bit of bias towards Midwestern cities that aren't Chicago?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think it, it, crosses the gamut, not only in, just in news, but just in general. I remember when I, you know, I'm from the East coast. And when I said I was coming to Indianapolis, a lot of my friends were, what, what are you doing? What's, what are you doing out there? And then over the years, as they would come visit me for various big sporting events and other things we were having, they realized like, wow, this is, this is really a neat city. And, um, yeah, you know, now, you know, at the time I wasn't, I didn't have a family, but now, you know, Uh, with raising a family you really see the benefits of being in this city and and you do see a little bit of that I think in the news business I remember there were times uh, especially when I would do stories um, for the national networks you know Mm. there was a little bit of that okay now which station are you with you're oh you're out in Indianapolis at our affiliate you know is that kind of you know this is this is big New York here talking to you (laughs) Is that pervasive in the
0: industry? I mean, it's not just Indianapolis. I mean, if it was Columbus, Ohio, or Kansas City, Kansas,
1: or yeah, wherever. no, it's not. It's not just Indianapolis. It's it's basically anything that's not in one of the big, you know, I would say top ten markets in the country. You know, so and it's not just the East Coast. I mean, L.A. has the same mindset. You know, San Francisco, um, Atlanta. I mean, that's just that's just where the big boys are, right? And you know, it's everyone starts in these smaller markets and. And the mindset is, if you're really good, you make it to a big market. So, so if you had told your
0: friends before you moved out here, not only am I matriculating to Indianapolis, but guess what? We're going to get to host a Super Bowl before right. New York City is going to get to host a Super Bowl or East Rutherford, New Jersey. What would their
1: reaction have been? They they wouldn't have believed me. And think about the Final Fours. I mean, we've had uh, we've had. It's actually, for me personally, I went to I went to school in North Carolina. I'm a Tar Heel, so there's not a lot of Tar Heels uh, here in Indianapolis. But two big Final Fours that were hosted here were significant events for two of my coaches. Dean Smith played it, or coached his last game here in a Final Four, as did Bill Guthridge. And uh, so there were just neat opportunities over the years with various sporting events, whether it was basketball or football. You mentioned you grew up on the East Coast. We're
0: talking with Roger Harvey former wthr reporter and now managing principal at bose public affairs group strategic communicator par excellence you grew up in the east coast on the east coast because your father had an amazing job and came up with one of the greatest advertising slogans of all time which i remember as a kid you told me the story when we were talking about the podcast, I'd love for you to tell it again in the context of how you grew up, how you ended up in Florida, and then basically how you ended up in North Carolina and decided to use, do TV as a living. I know that's kind of a
1: giant set of questions, but uh, I know you can be concise. I, I will do my best. So, uh, I, I come from a, uh, a broadcast family. Uh, my dad, a television um, advertising executive and uh, at the time you either had to be in new york la or miami to do that so this would have been in the in the 60s early 60s and my mother was a casting director so she would pick the talent for the commercials my dad would produce the commercials that's how they met and uh, one of his clients um, he was fortunate he had a lot of great clients one of his clients was timex watches And uh, the the slogan you're referring to was the takes a licking keeps on ticking. And so they had a whole campaign of commercials that he was responsible for where they had a gentleman by the name of John Cameron Swayze. And you can find these on YouTube. They're actually kind of funny watching them. And they would put the watches in various situations. So on motorboat propellers, on baseball bats of Mickey Mantle at Yankees practice or what have you. And takes a licking keeps on ticking was was the campaign. And um, so, you know, growing up in my house, quite honestly, Robert, it was interesting that uh, for me, what was usual as, as a member of my family is that when the commercials were on, we actually paid attention to the commercials because my parents would sometimes argue about, oh, that's Carol Demas, the, the mom in the Tide commercial, or that's so, you know, and I just thought that was the way things happened until I went over to a friend's house and no one watched the commercials. <laughs> I thought, wait a minute, we should be paying attention. Um, but in any event, so, we got tired of living in new york city i was born in the city and uh, my mom actually got tired of it i was relatively young i didn't have a say in it and uh, so we moved to south florida and um, he uh, had a, he had a tv production company down there that's still in existence today and did music videos um back in the day with miami sound machine with Gloria estefan and uh, a bunch of different shows um, howdy duty show and so forth and then um, i got involved obviously being around them in television I wanted to get into journalism, and so um, there's a tape around somewhere of me hosting the Nooney Robinson Show, which is the name of our high school football coach at South Plantation High School, shout out to the Paladins, and Fort Lauderdale, and um, so I did that, and then got into, wanted to go to Carolina because they're a journalism school, and that's how I got to North Carolina.
0: Did you go to high school with anyone famous? I'm thinking sports figures, because a lot of terrific uh, athletes come out of South Florida.
1: Oh yeah, no, we had, we had a bunch. Um, There were a couple of folks that played in the, uh, played in the NBA. Um, Guy by the name of Reggie Cross played for the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, Had some folks, a couple of pitchers in baseball Um, tennis player guy grew up with down the street, got as high as number six in the world in tennis um, his son is on the PGA tour right now, Daniel Berger, um, and then golf, um, another neighbor down the street played on the LPGA tour for, for a while too. So yeah, it was a big sports sports area down there and, uh, lots of athletes.
0: You mentioned your parents being in quote unquote, in the business. Did they encourage you or did they say there's a better way to make a living Roger or <laughs> kind of neutral?
1: They, they were supportive, but it was much like that was the same with sports. I was I played a lot of competitive sports and they never pushed me in any direction. Um, and they were supportive of me going into journalism. And, um, you know, they never they never once tried to steer me in a, in a different direction. They were they were actually exactly how you would want to want to be raised in that regard.
0: Did you have a favorite sport you played? I think I know the answer, but I want to ask the question. I did,
1: yes. Yeah. So uh, I I was one of those because uh, I played played a bunch of different things. I'm a lefty, so baseball I pitched and played first. It's usually where they end up sticking the lefty. Um, and then I played basketball, uh, but tennis was my was my main sport um, that I played.
0: Do you ever hit around with somebody famous, some a name we would recognize?
1: I have. I, uh, a, few t- a few folks, um, probably the biggest name, um, and it was it was unintentional how it all came about, but I worked at the tennis club down there it's called Central Park, and they host the um, the Orange Bowl, which is the big junior tennis tournament. So virtually every major professional player has played the Orange Bowl, and obviously many of them have won the Orange Bowl from Federer to Yannick Noah to Arthur Ashe to Andy Roddick, come I in go down the line, McEnroe. And any of it, I got to Hit one time one year there was a there was a young kid from uh, Germany coming over to play in the tournament and he got over here before his playing partner got here and so he shows up at the at the front desk at the club and basically with some broken English said hey is there somebody around here to hit with and I said yeah I'll close up the pro shop and hit with you and it was uh, Boris Becker so about a year and a half after I hit with him he ended up winning uh, Wimbledon he was unseated and it was a crazy. He's like seventeen when he won Wimbledon, right? Like seven, I think it was seventeen when he won. Yeah, Wimbledon. he was. Yeah, it was. It was unbelievable. In fact, in in um, in the in the area, there's a there. You talked about Holiday Inn. There's a Holiday Inn nearby, and when he won Wimbledon, I remember they put a sign up that said Boris Becker slept here. It was a, it was a big deal. George Washington.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you when you are hitting with him. You know, did you get one by him or, you know, handcuff him? And then there you see him a year later in Wimbledon going, you know, I've
1: already I was so that. was so many years ago. I, what, I do re- what I do remember is that I thought he was good, but, you know, he, he did not win that tournament that weekend. I mean, there's just a lot of good – there's a lot of people really good at tennis. Same thing with golf, individual sports. It's about mentally at the end of the day, as it was explained to me at a young age, it's like you could take the number one, number two, number ten player in the world – and the number 1000 player and you put them next to each other and the same thing in golf and you're like wow why is that guy that good and that guy is just struggling or hasn't made it and the, it's all in the mindset it's the the guy that's number 100 in the world robert he thinks he's going to hit the shot under pressure the guy that's number one in the world knows he's going to hit the shot under pressure and that's that's what it boils down to
0: did you did you get to cover the,
1: you know with all the amazing
0: sports sporting events and sports that come to this city. I find myself, and this came up in a podcast actually not that long ago, I find myself missing the RCA tennis tournament Yes, a lot. It was a terrific tournament for years. It was the clay court nationals or something in the seventies and maybe early eighties. And it switched to hard court. Connors was here. Sampras was here. I mean, big names. And it was voted like the best tournament 15 years in a row, 12 years in a row, or the entire ATP tour, I guess we could ask Miles, Mark Miles would probably know. But, you know, it went away because the Cincinnati tournament became so big as a tune-up to the U.S. Open. Did you get a chance to be involved in that tournament or cover it in any way?
1: I did, uh, a little bit of both. So covering it, certainly from the the journalism perspective. And then I was fortunate enough, um, when I got here in you know, found people that played tennis, you know, because I was obviously still playing a fair amount. Um, I got involved and I was one of the announcers um for, on Stadium Court. So over the years, I was fortunate to uh to cover some great players and matches um as as the public address announcer. And um you're right. I mean the tournament was phenomenal. Um and you know the the, the one of the challenges unfortunately for, for Indianapolis in that tournament is it's you know scheduling is so important. Um, when you're a tournament, the size of Indianapolis, everybody loved coming here, but it has to fit in the schedule. And I, I I keep making this comparison to golf because it is very similar. It's the same thing with a golf tournament. They it's all in the scheduling because the players pick the big tournaments they have to play in. So the master series in tennis. So you talk about Cincinnati. I mean, that is, that is a behemoth of a tournament. And so that's on their list when they're playing over here in the States and, you know, depending on where those other tournaments or fit into the schedule. And we had been moved around a little bit. That's what unfortunately causes, you know, causes problems from scheduling, but it was a great tournament. Cincinnati is basically the U S open, but in
0: yeah. Cincinnati, but in the Midwest, I mean, all the top players, men and women, and we never Absolutely. really had that as I recall. So you and I have to go to the Cincinnati tournament this year. Cause I try to go every year, but it, COVID has obviously jacked it up. It's a beautiful facility. They spent a ton of
1: money. And you can see how popular the sport is. Absolutely, you no know, people and tons of people from Indianapolis go over there. I mean, every year that I've been, you always end up running into people that you know live down the street from you, or you know, you end oh, up. Oh, that's right. In your town.
0: I want to mention one name, probably the most famous name in the in the history, perhaps I think of of Indiana tennis, and that is someone I'm I'm going to guess you know, and maybe if you don't, we're going to move on, and that is Todd Witzkin. Uh, very famous Carmel tennis player who had a v- terrific pro career, including uh, beating five time champion at the US Open, Jimmy Connors at the US Open. That's and right. Todd passed, a- Todd passed away about 20 plus years ago of cancer, a phenomenal athlete. Uh, did you know him at all? Did you get a chance to uh, interact with him or, or, or Rick, his brother?
1: Yeah. So I, I knew of Todd, but I did not know him uh, personally. I had not. Uh, moved here to Indianapolis then. But um, I do know his brother, Rick. Rick is, you know, phenomenal tennis player. Um, in fact, he um, he was nice enough. Uh, you talk about the RCA tournament. We used to do like a celebrity pro-am kind of thing before um, some of the matches as it got later into the tournament. And so like one year I played, I was fortunate enough to play with Elio Castroneves, who is I mean, he, he loves tennis and he is as passionate and driven about tennis as he is race car. I mean, he's, he's hilarious, but Linda Cohn from ESPN, you may remember her, you know, yeah. she, I played with her, she and I were doubles partners. And so Rick would always play with us. And we used to joke around that Rick would kind of just put up with us, you know, because we're, we're out there just trying to hit, you know, winners and crazy shots. And he's like, settle down, settle down kids. You know. <laughs> But Rick, I'll tell you just one thing. Funny about Rick, it'll be interesting to see if 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 he says something to me, if he listens to your podcast. He is one of the, and I might mess this up, but he's one of the top pickleball players in the country. Um, uh, great guy, and uh, he's he's you know still plays a lot of tennis and teaches tennis, and he's taught so many tremendous you know junior players. I mean, you could go on and on. Had a great tennis career, but pickleball, he's he's one of the top players in the country. Pretty interesting. Pickleball is a
0: it's a phenomenon among people of a certain age, and it's not just octogenarians. People who are younger, I play racquetball a couple of times a week,
1: and right. a lot of racquetball players uh, play pickleball. Do you do you play? I play with my family. You know, it's it's that's what's nice about pickleball is you can play together as a family, so that that's a lot of fun. Um, but by, mainly, I just stick stick with tennis. But it's it is a huge huge sport. I mean, it's everywhere.
0: Did you, have you gotten a chance to kind of talk about your love of tennis and some of the people you've met with Mark Miles, uh, Mark Miles, the former uh, guest on the leaders and legends podcast was the president of the ATP tour, the men's professional tennis tour among his many other amazing career stops. Uh, I love talking to him about tennis. Cause I'm a big tennis uh, right. fan. Have you had a chance to chat with yeah, him a little has, bit?
1: He has great stories. So he used to, um, before he uh, does what he does now, he was downtown, um, worked in the Salesforce Tower where I am. And so, you know, over the years, uh, yeah, we've had a chance to talk some about tennis and he, you know, the stories he has, you know, being, running the business. It's really, uh, it's really very interesting dealing with all those personalities.
0: The man needs to write a book, as I have told him <laughs> more than once. Right. You went to North Carolina. Were you at North Carolina for any of their Basketball national championships, or were you there
1: during the Doherty era? Yeah, so I just missed. I just missed Jordan. Um, although he would come back in the summer. If you remember when he was first drafted, there were a lot of folks that were a little unsure. Uh, Bulls fans don't always like to admit that, but they were a little unsure of him in the beginning. And um, he would come back to Chapel Hill uh, in the summer and um, and practice with the team. So. I saw him play in person from a practice standpoint, but not in a game. But, yes, I – so I was there when um, I had classes uh, with Kenny Smith, Joe Wolf, um, Brad Darty was still there. A couple of those folks, yeah. But we did uh, – th- those were not the national championship years. They were still darn good. They just – Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was – To win. Yeah, our best year was when we ended up um, – uh, let's see, what did we – we got to the Eastern – uh, the finals in the Eastern Conference. We lost to um, Syracuse. And remember cycle He had an unbelievable run. Yeah, you lost,
0: That was 87. That's the year
1: I. You won the national championship. Yep. Yeah, that was. Uh, but we had a really good team that year. And, of course, Cycli had an unbelievable game. So
0: we should note, even though you we do not post the
1: video on
0: leaders and legends podcast that our guest Roger Harvey is wearing a beautiful Carolina
1: blue Oxford. <laughs> every day, Robert. No, not quite. Every day.
0: <laughs> you go to North Carolina, you get your journalism degree. Did you ever waver? Did you ever think about doing something else or you were laser focused the whole time? And then once you get out of North Carolina, uh, you know, journalists are famous, especially TV journalists or infamous or renowned, whatever word you want to use from, you know, hopping from market to market. And that's not a criticism. You're always in search of something bigger or something that fits your family life, perhaps a little bit better. What was your path that led you to Indianapolis?
1: Yeah. So at Carolina, they've got a tremendous journalism school. So I was fortunate to to be a part of that. And, um, while I was there, uh, I had a couple of very strong internships with TV stations and uh, one person in particular who does some sideline reporting for CBS to this day in basketball, especially during March Madness, was the local sports anchor. And uh, for whatever reason, he took me under his wing and, and helped me. And basically, I had a tape, a professionally done resume tape. And in television, it's not so much the resume on paper. It's they want to see what you look like, what you sound like. And he got me on the set of the station, recorded the entire sports cast and had a phenomenal tape and was basically I got a job before I got out of college, um, which is really unheard of. It's hard to it's hard to break in to begin with. And if you do break in, you're breaking into, you know, hopefully um, the Fargo Chamber of Commerce isn't listening to this. But, you know, it's going to be a real small market. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, my first job, I was lucky, was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which is not a bad place to to start they they pay in sunshine robert but it's a good place (laughs) (laughs) and and i must say i i do need to give a shout out to uh to to a guy that was a couple years older than me at carolina who helped me um he was actually at that station and was going to take another opportunity and gave me the heads up that there was an opening and a lot of your listeners are going to know who it is it's Stuart scott um from espn great guy and um he he helped me get into that first station when he was leaving that station to go to another another opportunity. Back you then, you actually he anticipated use... my
0: next question because based on on his love of Carolina and his the era of sports that he would talk about on Sports Center, my guess is that you were contemporaries. Were
1: you did you stay in touch with him and reach out I to did. him during his sickness? Yeah, I did. Uh, the last time I saw him actually um was at a party here back when we hosted the Super Bowl. And um, spent some time with him. With, with him, then that was the last time I, I was with him in person. But um, great guy, just um, full of energy. And uh, like I said, that's he. He. He's, he helped me tremendously get into that first job in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And so I got there. Had only been there a couple of months, and you know how it works, Robert. You know, news is big opportunities usually happens when something bad's going on and there was this hurricane that was brewing, um, that was coming to the Carolinas. They didn't know exactly where it was going to hit, but lo and behold, it hit right where we were, uh, Hugo. And, um, so I did some live shots for stations across the country. Um, and for ABC at the time I was an ABC (laughs) affiliate and a, um, uh, that got me to Richmond, Virginia. They saw me and they're like, if he's dumb enough to stand out there covering that hurricane <laughs> in South Carolina, maybe he'll come to Richmond, Virginia. And so uh, that's how I got to Richmond, Virginia. That was my next move. You get
0: in a situation where you have to choose, like, I, I need to do sports, I need to do weather, I need to do politics as as a tv person you know where you where you kind of say this is going to be my area of concentration and i'm all in on x
1: i think you can try to do that but the reality is you're going to go where the opportunity is i think most people would do that for me um news was just an opportunity that presented itself right from the beginning so you know, the sports that I covered over the years, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to the Olympics in Australia in 2000 and cover that. But it was mainly covering it from a news perspective. Back when the Pacers made those runs in New York, you know, at the Garden, I covered those. But it was the it was the news side of it, you know, covering the fans and so forth, not necessarily as a sports reporter.
0: Do you ever wish you had made it to ESPN? There's a, a very thin uh, ESPN connection to the leaders and legends podcast. And that is someone who I, whom I'd love to have on the podcast. And her name is Jill Fredrickson, whose locker was two down from mine at Thomas car Howe high school. Uh, so, you know, maybe one day we'll get lucky and and have her come on. I think Dana uh, Hunsinger Benbow did a uh, feature on her in the star, But Jill's a brilliant member of a a beautiful, wonderful Irvington family. Uh, But do you ever look at ESPN or maybe, you know, worldwide wrestling or some other, you know, uh, delightful sport and go, man, you know what? I really could have done a terrific job as a play-by-play person for ESPN or something like that.
1: I, I always, I always enjoyed news. I mean, there were a couple of times when unique situations would present itself that I'd have to fill in and, and, you know, do the, do the sports on an evening newscast, but doing play by play is a whole different ball game than, than talking about highlights and highest score wins in a sports <laughs> in a sports uh, part of a newscast. Uh, so i I always enjoyed the news, but I have a lot of friends that, that are in the sports world. And uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. There's a tremendous amount of travel. I don't know that people realize just how much you you're on the road in that world.
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Roger Harvey, former TV reporter for WTHR, and now he works at Bose Public Affairs Group. And not only does he work there, he is a managing director of strategic communications and simply put at the apex of of what PR people do for a living here in Indianapolis. Roger, is there a particular Hoosier leader or legend you admire most
1: i don't know if there's one um there's certainly there's certainly folks that i see around that have impressed me especially someone that's not from indianapolis so i'm you know i've been here a fair number of years but i a name that comes to mind when i look at all that he has touched and been involved with and and he's been extremely nice and um and helpful to me is uh, Jim Morris. Um, I, I would put him probably up there at the at the top of, of folks that I've had the opportunity to be around. Um, really a really a tremendous person. He is
0: by far the most frequently cited Hoosier leader or legend and we were lucky enough to have him on the podcast as well a couple of times actually. You come to Indianapolis and you you disappoint all your friends and you decide to move to the Hoosier State. You've covered some terrific stories, big stories, not only here, but around the world. Are there two or three? Let's start within Indi- Indi- within Indiana. Are there two or three within the Hoosier State that stand out to you
1: still? Yeah, there, there are a few. Um... For me, you know, I, I get asked this question a fair amount. And for me, it's the ones, it's it's the it's the stories that are tremendously personal. And, you know, one quick story, I ended up going to interview a, a single mom um, in a uh, neighborhood on the South Side. And um, she was going through some tough times. And the, the story was about infant mortality. And, and unfortunately, she had lost a child. But I walked into the apartment, and on the walls, Robert, are all these um, pictures and paintings clearly done by kids and their certificates they're all framed 100 attendance for this child and this child. and it's just basically a um a room full of accolades for for her kids and um that really that really stood out to me um you know not only she lost a child but the children that she she had and, were, and were, was raising what a positive influence she was trying to be around them and um it it stood out to me and i i did some things to help that family out over the years um, because I felt like she was working really hard. And so that's, that's the kind of story it just aired one time on the air and probably no one remembers it, but those types of stories about real people dealing with challenges and how they overcome it, those things stand stand out to me. Um, In terms of a story that, you know, would resonate or people would remember probably the biggest one um, that I can, I can certainly think of is, um, you know, 9-11 when that happened, I was working here at Channel 13 at the time and um, got sent right away um, to New York City. And I was born in the city. So it's was from there and I have a lot of family and friends there. And and covering um, uh, Indiana Task Force One, which is our group of first responders out there, um, was was a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. Seeing what those folks had to go through as they were trying to trying to help people
0: back to the first story you shared you know you I, I don't know how many times you've been interviewed I've been interviewed more times than I can count hundreds I would guess at this point point. and you know most of the interviews I mean I think all of them are on the street in your office um, every once in a while I would ask to get interviewed outside St. John's Catholic Church after I left mass thinking that gave me more credibility whether it did or didn't I don't know <laughs> But most of her are in somewhat sterile, professional environments. But when you walk into someone's home, how different is that?
1: Well, it's, it's very different, at least for me on a couple of fronts. Number one, you're, you're in an area that's very uh, personal, right? And, and usually private to them. And then when you layer on top of that, the topic that we were talking about, which was, you know, her losing a child. And the only reason why she agreed to do the interview was because she was trying to help other people, um, be aware of signs of things that they need to do to make sure they stay in good health so that they don't have that problem is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a tremendous, um, um, weight that you carry into those situations and you, you want to be respectful and you want to do the right thing. And I don't know that people always understand that when they watch a news story, you know, it's all packaged up and you see it, you know, Mm -hmm. no one really, I think gives much thought to all the logistics of how that all happens and, and how you have to um, be personable and understanding and show empathy and, and, you know, just be a good person, right. To, to try to to tell a story and, and make people comfortable to talk about something that's very, very horrible and oftentimes tragic that's happened in their life.
0: It seems the reporters who have some of the best stories best to be using used, um, Respectfully, are the crime and public safety reporters. You think of Jack Reinhardt, who started working in this market in the 70s, right? Did you cover many crime scenes? And you know, when you did, how did you handle that? Because there's a rawness there that can't be ignored or faked.
1: Oh, you're you're exactly right. Um, I will. uh, I'll I'll tell you, Robert. It's. I mean, it's. It's probably no different than, than than people that have served in the military and have been actually in war zones. I've, unfortunately, seen um, a lot of different ways people leave this earth um, in person, and there are times over the years, um, uh, a couple of horrible ones in South Carolina, um, in Virginia. that, you know, it's from time to time, I think about those situations and you'll, you'll just, you'll never forget it. And, um, beyond that, what you, what you try to do, um, even when I was, you know, fortunately I was not the crime reporter here in Indianapolis, but you end up covering, covering these things from time to time. And, and, you know, you, you've got to try to talk to these folks. And, um, those are some of the toughest interviews you'll ever do is um is is talking to people when they're going through literally one of the worst times of their life if not the worst time
0: and so how do you as a reporter you know we all see whether it's portrayed in the movies or happening live where uh, let's just stick to tv reporters for the moment are shouting questions sticking the microphone In the face of whomever. And it seems that the movies tend to portray the media as intrusive, selfish, sort of, we have, we're entitled to the story. You must talk to us. Am I far off in that characterization? I mean, I could mention several movies, obviously, whether it's um, um, some dirty, hairy movies where the media comes off poorly or some others. Right. Um, Of course, there's always absence of malice. That was a newspaper reporter, as I recall. But anyway. um, how do you handle that? How do you decide how far to push? And do you think that the media, the TV reporters get a bad rap because they're just doing their job?
1: Well, I think, you know, obviously the movie side of it is the entertainment side, right? And and conflict is always, you know, you think of some of those movies you're talking about, there's conflict, there's the black hat, right? There's the bad guy and there's the good guy. And, and so, you know, I, what I would say in the real world, if you will, when it comes to covering you're talking about crime stories, I I don't think reporters act that way at all in those types of stories. Now, where where you might see some crossover is if you know a law enforcement official is is not being forthcoming with information, or if there's an internal investigation, sure. or you know things like that. It's a little bit different in terms of covering public safety, where it's the official that's maybe reporters are being aggressive with. But certainly, I've I never saw a situation where. Where people were being aggressive in that way with um, with folks that have experienced a loss.
0: So when you're watching the movie Die Hard, where every member of the news media in the movie <laughs> is treated like an abject idiot, do you just go, "All right, I get it," or
1: do you get a hey, little riled up? I can't. I, you know, I, I I can't defend everybody, Robert. It reminds me of a conversation I had many years ago with our with the Marion County Sheriff at the time, Jack Cotty who told me um, I I was doing a story. I don't know. It's the third or fourth high ranking person that had gotten in trouble with the sheriff's department. And it was like a routine or this is like the third or fourth time in a month. I'm in his office talking to him about it. And he, he, I sat down he says, Roger, he says, there's one thing I've learned in my years in law enforcement. He said, everybody has their 3%, meaning that, you know, no matter what the profession is, you're going to have a certain percentage of knuckleheads. And so, you know, not not everyone um, has the best of intentions, um, but it seems but the, the majority media, do. It seems like the media
0: is an easy scapegoat sometimes, and other times, like any other profession, a legitimate object of criticism. When you go into a profession that's as ho- high profile as journalism. Is that something that you have to think about? I mean, it's like putting your name on a candidate paper and you decide to run for secretary of state or you know, president, attorney general, governor, whatever. There are a lot of really good people who don't make that leap. Right. Because they don't want that scrutiny. And so as a TV reporter, knowing that you're you're going to be of the news, but potentially could be in the news. Do you think that deters certain people and say, you know what, what the hell, I'll I'll write a column instead?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think first of all, you know, the media world, if you will, the landscape is much different now than it was, you know, back when I started uh, in this uh, in this media business. And I hate to sound like the person, you know, back in the day, I walked uphill both ways to school. But there there is a there is a little bit of truth to that that you know, now when, when people consume media, they consume what they want to hear, right? I mean, it's, it's so fragmented. Um, most people are not interested in learning about another person's perspective. They want to be in their echo chamber and they want to hear what their view of the world is. And so that does create some of those challenges you're talking about. And, the, you know, there's not just three television networks anymore. And uh, so there's a lot of players and then there's lots of folks That are not necessarily traditional journalists in terms of, you know, working for someone that's putting out a paper every day and or a television station reporter that's you know doing three or four newscasts. With technology, I mean, you know the drill. Everybody's a journalist as long as you have a phone that can record video, um, you're 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 a journalist because you can cover things and post things. So that's that's probably part of what causes some of that. Um, Every year there's the study that talks about some of the least trusted professions or however they want to phrase it. And (laughs) reporters and politicians are usually fairly close together.
0: We are talking with Roger Harvey, a principal with the Bose Public Affairs Group, Managing Director of Strategic Communications. In a previous life, he was an Emmy-winning journalist at various stations, including our own WTHR. I want to go back to something you mentioned, and then we're going to talk a little public relations before you get the five questions. And that is nine eleven. wasn't that long ago that I was in New York, and then you know you watch television, whether it's Law and Order or, I mean, hell, it could be Kojak, right? And there are the twin towers. And my brother, who's an airline pilot, called me on the on nine eleven that morning and said, "You're not going to believe it. Some idiot just flew into the World Trade Center." I was working at the State House at the time. And my first answer to him or excuse me, my first question to him was because he had flown into New York City, you know, more times than he could count at that point. And I said, is it rainy? And his response was, it doesn't matter. As soon as you make the turn to go up, you know, up Manhattan, he goes, you can see him forever. And then literally, like within a few seconds, the second one was hit Um, as a native New Yorker watching that unfold. And then seeing the reaction among, uh, among New Yorkers, uh, as they, as they fought back and came together, how did that affect you?
1: Yeah, well, certainly being back there covering that when I, you know, was, was born there and have been there many times over the years, growing up, seeing family and friends, it, it did have a different perspective for me. Um, I think probably as I look back on that, you know, obviously, myself and hundreds of other journalists where they're covering various stories. But the one thing that stands out to me might be of interest um, to you, Robert, and, and the listeners is um, I remember one day, um, so the the uh, convention center, the Javits Center, was the was the staging area for mm-hmm. all the task force teams from around the country. And Indiana is very fortunate. We have one of the, the biggest and best um, task force, but there's other states that have really strong ones, too. And so they all get to know each other because when there are all these disasters, they're all together when we go when they go cover hurricanes and so forth. And so I was talking to uh, one of the other states that was next to the Indiana folks. And he was telling me about how when they had gone in to relieve another uh, team, he said, boy, it was just amazing. You could just see the look on their faces. Um, and I said, you know, being a reporter, I said, well, where where is that exactly? Like, is there a point where you guys actually pass? in the street. And he goes, Oh yeah, it's down here. You know, he pulled out a map and showed me. So I told my camera, uh, my my camera person, I said, all right, that's where we're going tomorrow morning. We're going there. We're going to camp out at that cross point where you have people that have worked a 12 hour shift covered in soot and debris and have seen the worst things they could have possibly seen in their life or walking out of there with no energy whatsoever. And in coming the other way headed South is the fresh crop, if you will, of people that have just gotten there and their freshly pressed shirts and, you know, outfits and they pass each other. And what does that moment look like? You know, and so that's what we did. And um, we we were fortunate to get a tremendous story um, that uh, we were lucky, won some nice awards. Um, but also, more importantly, just told the story of how you had two different perspectives and they would literally meet in the street and then lining up on the side sides of the street, Robert, were all kinds of locals, if you will, New Yorkers waving American flags and, you know, people that would, had baked food and were handing food out as they were, as they were walking past each other. It was something I'll never forget that really stands out to me.
0: So when you went back there after having covered it and you looked down to the battery mm-hmm. and they were gone, how did you feel?
1: Yeah, it, um, I've been back several times since, um, I have yet to go through the museum. Um, I hear wonderful things about it. I just, it's off, it's off the charts. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I just don't know place. that, um, what, what stands out to me when I go back is, um, for folks that know the area, there's a, there's a small fire station right there on the diagonal. Um, and there's now a large mural. It's very, it's very nice what they've done, but, um, you know, just, just seeing those folks there and just remember being down there off church street in that area. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to believe. Um, but you know, one thing is New Yorkers and I know it's, it's almost a borderline cliche. They really are resilient. (laughs) They, um, they, they are, they're, they're tremendous folks. I mean, that, that is a city unlike any other place. And, um, it's it's uh, it is surreal every time I go back, especially now since I've been back with my family, and it's even more surreal then.
0: I remember reading a story, a contemporaneous story on the attacks that tried to accurately describe the massiveness of the World Trade Center, the towers, and that the towers combined had more office space than the entire downtown Indianapolis with, and it's not close. Like you don't, my brother said at the time, he goes, you don't realize how big they are. Of course he's flying over them, but he goes, as as soon as you make the turn, like you can see them, they're they're gigantic. There's no way it was an accident. And I didn't really don't know any, know anyone who lived there really at the time. I wish I did just to try to get a better idea of, of what they went through, but covering it as a journalist and also as a native son, did you feel like you, you had some license to tell whatever story you wanted to do? And if it was a little more emotional than perhaps you know they taught at journalism school, then that was just okay?
1: Yeah. And I, I always looked at it. I, I looked at it through the, the lens and I was fortunate to have some wonderful people teach me along the way. Um, and you know, I've, I've been told many times that I was a very strong storyteller and like I mentioned to you, I was fortunate to win some wonderful awards, you know, little old Indianapolis competed against, and still to this day does, this isn't something I just did, but you know, that that station is known for winning national awards. Uh, it really is amazing what, what THR has done in this market. Um, but that all being said, part of what I try to do when I go to these situations is not cover the the phrase I always use is don't, don't out cover the network, meaning that, you know, the network is going to cover the big picture and they're going to get Giuliani and they're going to get the police chief and they're going to get all those people don't even mess with that. You want to cover, find the best local story. It's like the example I gave you, get to that flashpoint. No one had covered, no one had done that story, you know, of where right. these people were actually intersecting and tell, you know, get the real people story side of it. And that. That's what i used to always try to do and that's what i did there and, and fortunately, with the indiana task force one there's some there's some wonderful people on that on that team so it it was quite honestly easy in that regard just following those folks around because they yeah. it was really tremendous what they did chief brown's
0: been a friend for a long time yeah he's yeah. as
1: good as it gets oh yeah he i was uh just as a side note i was down i guess the statue of limitations is passed now so <laughs> um but when I was down covering Katrina, that was the last story I cut. My, my whole journalism career was bookended by hurricanes, Hugo and Katrina. And um, and we were we had uh, run out of gas, and uh, he helped me out. <laughs> he, <laughs> hypothetically speaking, he helped me out with some, <laughs> with some fuel for our port explorer.
0: <laughs> a little cause and effect story before we move on for a, a kind of a quick dive into public relations so you can hear the master at work. And that is uh, Afghanistan. As I've mentioned a few times here on the Leaders and Legends podcast, my son did two tours over in Afghanistan. My niece did one tour and very proud of both of them. Uh, You were over there. You covered a a sweet baby uh, and and the surgery. What was it? You were at 9-11. You've been at these disasters. You've seen how people come together. But there really is something special about seeing americans eight nine ten thousand miles away from their home serving in a country that you could argue maybe has little or no effect on what happens here on a day-to-day basis but seeing those troops those marines and airmen and naval personnel What's that like when you when you look at him and go, "Where are you from?" And they say Omaha or Indianapolis or Salt Lake City or Tucson. And you're like going, thinking in your mind, "What in the hell are we doing here having right. this conversation?"
1: Uh, well, first of all, Robert, um, thank you to your your family service and also to you for for serving as well. Um, I um, I will tell you, Afghanistan um, was probably one of the most challenging uh, situations I've ever been in. I mean, that that's a country that not to go down a history rabbit hole, but has known nothing but war. And so basically the entire country is from an infrastructure standpoint is, is blown up. I mean, the roads don't exist. There's no line lane markings. I mean, it's just a free for all you go wherever. problem is you can't go wherever because over the years, um, Russia in particular and others left landmines behind and, uh, you know, you you basically have to stay within the 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 tracks of your um, of your tank or your or your jeep um, to have complete assurance that there's not you know a landmine or um, an IED or something like that. But um, yeah, it's 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 amazing when you see. To me, the most amazing thing when I was over there covering our, covering true the soldiers is number one, just just how young. I mean, I remember I remember being part of a, of a group. There's six of us. Um, and you know, it's, it's like, who, who doesn't belong in the photo? I've got a photo of these <laughs> six brave <laughs> soldiers and there's an interpreter, um, with us. And then there's me and my photographer. And it's like, who, who's standing out in this photo? Um, <laughs> that being said, you know, two of them in the group, it's the first time they have been out of the country, Robert. And they're in Afghanistan. Like they hadn't been to the Bahamas or, you know, Mexico or all the, places you would think someone would go as a young person for the first time. No, it was it was Afghanistan. And there he is up there with a 40 caliber, you know, um, weapon protecting us on top of the Humvee. Um, And it's just talking to those folks. I mean, that that this is the only thing they've known about being out of the country is being in a war zone. And uh, it really is amazing what uh, what our troops go through in those situations. and uh, I have the utmost respect. I tell you, until you've been over there, and I was only there for a small amount of time, but I, it felt like a lot longer. Um, I just, I, I think the world of those folks.
0: Did you think when you were over there about about all the all the television correspondents before you who who went to war zones? Not think about it like you were trying to be one of them or anything like that, but just just you know some of the most famous journalists and let's let's do radio and tv at this point really made their bones and got well known by covering war zones and is that something you were conscious of or, or some the history that you were aware of and, and you were like you know i may not be you know morally safer in the jungles right. of vietnam but i'm here and i'm i'm damn glad i covered this story
1: yeah so the short answer is um, what where I'm going with this, based on your question, is it actually led to me uh, getting out of the news business and doing what I do now. Um, right before I went over there, you know, Oprah calls it the aha moment. Uh, for me, it was more of the oh, fill in the blank moment. Um, my wife was um, pregnant on bed rest, the end of her pregnancy um, with our daughter. Everything turned out fine. But at the time, you're, you know, you're dealing with a crisis in your own sandbox, if you will. And I'm going to Afghanistan because at the time I needed one more international assignment because my next opportunity was with one of the networks. And so that was what my world was gonna be, traveling to these hotspots. And right before I left, or shortly before I left, um, two things happened. David Bloom, um, a friend of mine at NBC, um, died um, over covering, covering the war. And then another friend of mine who I worked with years ago in Virginia Bob Woodruff, you may recall, he re- replaced Peter Jennings on World News Tonight. He had uh, part of his head uh, taken off, um, and um, he's doing fine. But these things are all happening, and I, my wife's on bed rest, and now I'm going to Afghanistan. And so, you know, I'm not the sharpest uh, sharpest tool on the toolbox, Robert, but I knew when I left to go to Afghanistan, it was probably not one of my better moves on the, uh, the personal home front. And so... Coming back, um, I pulled out my reporter pad on C-130 transport plane with the 82nd Airborne out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I sketched out this crazy idea to uh, leave journalism and do what I do now. So that's how it happened.
0: Well, like the superb journalist you are, you transitioned perfectly into the next few minutes of questions before we get to the five questions. And we're talking with Roger Harvey from Bose Public Affairs Group. I have to say, and and correct my memory, that you were like perhaps the first person I can think of who left journalism to go into public relations. Obviously, there were others, of course, Dave Arlen, our friend who left WIBC and went to go work for Mayor Hudnut. But you really did kind of start, I hate to say a trend, but maybe an exodus. And when did you... Start at Bose and, and how much fun has it been? Because I know maybe not all, but I certainly know a, a significant number of people with whom you work past or present at Bose. And they are the top of the very top when it comes to just being very good at their job and being terrific civic-minded human beings.
1: I first of all I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And uh um I was fortunate, a couple of things to your point, there, there really weren't many. And and you you mentioned a couple of folks that, you know, had left various broadcasting or journalism jobs, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't that well established, if you will. So I didn't have anyone that I could call up or reach out to with the idea that I had, you know, and so I had to be very, very careful and very discreet because the one thing about television is Robert, when they invest in you and they put your face on TV and, you know they want you to be a part of the team, and if they find out you don't want to be a part of the team, you're going to the uh, you know <laughs> the bureau in uh, the out the outskirts of Alaska, um, and that's just kind of how how it works in the business. So, so I didn't tell you at the station until I was ready to to let them know, and um, so um, I was fortunate at the time. Bose Public Affairs Group was was actually Bose Tracy, and um, there were some folks that were that were here. It was primarily a government relations firm that I thought very highly of, and uh, I went to them and I said, "Hey, I got this crazy idea. You know, do you uh, do you all think it makes sense from your perspective?" And fortunately, they said yes. And so the day I came over, we changed our name to Bose Public Affairs Group, and um, and since then, um, and I know you've done the same thing. You've been very gracious to help people too. Um, probably between the two of us, I'd say a fair amount of people (laughs) we've helped get jobs in various, uh, various places. In fact, uh, I had a, I had a a television anchor uh, not too long ago, tell me uh, they didn't know me at the time. I was already been gone, but they said they had shared with some folks that they were looking to get out of television. They said, you need to call Roger. And uh, he said, you know, he's, he's helped more people. He runs an underground railroad. I said, well, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if I'm doing that, but um, I, I, obviously I help people because who knows someday I've, I may need help.
0: <laughs> well, when you have a chance to, to be a pioneer in the market? And I think that's a fair statement for you. You know, you take a chance and it's worked out well for you. And it's a testament to how terrific you are at your job and what a wonderful organization Bose is. And I, I suppose we can let Michael O'Connor take credit just because we love Michael O'Connor and that's okay. But there's a lot of people who are involved in your success, and that's one of the things that I think uh, makes you so so respected among your peers and people in the industry and, and people you've helped. Uh, whether it's you know you and I having lunch outside on Washington Street, and our friend Russ Tuttle saying, "Hey, Roger, how's everything going?" Not knowing that. <laughs> I was sitting there at the time. I think that may be one of your favorite moments, Roger, as as <laughs> Russ and I started screaming at each other from a block away. Uh, what is some of the when we get together for lunch or whatever? We talk a lot about what we do, and in our final minutes here, are there a, a case or two or a client or two that really kind of stand out? I know when I was doing the messaging for the uh, the public relations for the family of the FedEx shooter, the whole family, you and I talked a little bit, cause I know that you had had so much experience in, in doing that level of crisis communications, but are, and then what was it like very quickly to, to pitch a story to a, to a former colleague?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, going back to the first part um, of, of your question. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I will tell you, you know, you, you are, a, you're very humble. You're, you're tremendous at what you do. And I think one of the things that I do enjoy and take pride in is that you and I, um, oftentimes are put in, you know, very interesting, let's call it interesting situations. And, um, I appreciate having the opportunity to bounce ideas off you. And and I think we can share that with your listeners, you know, that, that you and I try to help each other out the best we can. And, um, and, and I, and I thank you for that. Um, you know, when I look back at what some of the big ones are, I, I would, tell you that probably the biggest one in terms of I can't imagine a crisis bigger than these, but certainly the school shootings that have happened um, here in Indiana, and I've, I've handled um, both of them, the one in Martinsville and the one in Noblesville, um, and was also involved the, the North Central stabbing as well. Uh, not too long ago, those, those are the, the high, the high profile ones, right? Those are the ones where the network people parachute in and, you know, try to extract their story as quickly as they can. And, you know, as, cause they're, they're gonna go move to the next city tomorrow. Um, those are high pressure situations. And, um, you know, you mentioned FedEx that, that you were involved in. I think you you would agree with me that, you know, you, you can go to all the classes and, and seminars and get certifications and all that. And that's wonderful about crisis communications and so forth, but until you've actually been there, right? Staring at a computer screen, Thinking, all right, how am I going to handle this reporter from CNN or pick your national outlet plus the local reporters? That's a whole different level of experience. And um, I think you appreciate that too from your perspective.
0: Well, your point's well taken. I, it seems to me that in crisis communications, the most, as, as the FLAC, as the PR rep, the most important thing that you can do is say no. Because, right. you know, the, the statement that, that I sent on behalf of the whole family went out on Saturday. And we, I had an offer to go on good morning America the next day and CBS news, you know, CBS this morning, Sunday, or whatever the heck it's called the next day. And you just have to say no, because it's about the client, you know, you are thinking, wow, well, this could be great for my career and this is exposure and so on and so forth. But in crisis comms, especially it's, you, it's even more important to be laser focused on, on the client's needs and, and what the client can handle. Because, you know, to your point, Good Morning America is going to know my name on Sunday morning when I do the interview and they're going to forget it on Sunday afternoon, right? Like I'm immaterial. And right. so being able to resist the temptation to do some sort of all out media blitz when it's not in the interest of your client is 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 one of the hallmarks of it. And, and you're right. I mean, your training's in journalism. My training is in history. And so you hope that those those avenues of learning come back to help you, especially when it comes to write something, because you have to be so concise and so uh, accurate when you're dealing with situations like that
1: and, and doing it all under pressure. I mean, you don't have the luxury of waiting around a week to, to, you know, package something up with a pretty red bow on it. Um, And the other challenges, as you touched on, you know, is you have to think about who the client is. So, you know, as I mentioned in the, in the school situations, I was working with the school, but yours is a little bit different. Your example because you are working with the family. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, it reminds me, you some of your listeners may remember several years ago there was a horrific bus crash, a church on the on the north side, Colonial Hills Baptist Church, um, where members of a pastor's family they were coming back from a retreat. Um, they were killed um off of uh Keystone there near 465. And same type of thing as what you dealt with, you know, there, there it's really personal from the perspective of that the client is the actual family. And, uh, that's, that's a, a whole nother, um, experience that you have to deal with as your, as your hand on crisis communications.
0: So the first time you looked at Mary Mills and said, I got a story for you. Did she say, go to hell, Harvey, I'm
1: not doing your story. I don't think I'm trying to remember who the first person was that I went, but I, I think it was the reaction, whoever it was, was much like I would have been like, "Oh, here we go, now we're the salesmen now you know and and i'm i'm sure I'm sure they ribbed me much like I would do them i mean i I would have expected nothing less, and I'm sure i I got the appropriate amount of hazing was <laughs> oh, the last
0: question before we get to the five questions because you do this as you do this better than anyone I'm not going to say as well as anyone. you do it better than anyone. There are a lot of us who are in the p r world who come up through politics. And there's a lot of folks who major in marketing and comms in college. And then there's a lot of, of journalists who have moved on to a different career. But for those of us who whose foundation of public relations is political hackery, and I say that as a, a compliment to the group, how do you avoid, how have you done such a good job of maintaining a brand of of, I won't necessarily work with anyone, but I'm I'm not going to get pulled down into the, into the swamp of political back and forth when it, comes, when it comes to clients.
1: I will tell you, it's not easy, and it, ha- it hasn't <laughs> been easy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a challenge um, more times than, than not, quite honestly. Um, and I, it's just something I've just stayed true to the very beginning of when I started this. You know, there, there's plenty of good people that handle the political side, of things. And, um, I don't have a problem referring, you know, opportunities to those folks. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's just something that I've not, uh, allowed myself to, to get into because it's just, you know, you know, this it's, it's just, it's so, um, it's just, it's just gotten so ugly, you know, it's, 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 it's scorched earth mentality. And at the end of the day. You know, sure, it might be a client that paid you well, but then you got to go live the rest of the year. You know, doing what you did, and it's it's just a hard it's a hard dynamic, and I'd I'd rather not get involved in those things if I can.
0: I was the communications director for Mike Pence during RIFRA, Roger. I completely understand where you're coming from. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Number one, for Roger Harvey, what was your first job?
1: My first job uh, was at the Central Park uh, Tennis Center, where I basically swept courts and made sure the mayor was happy when he came out to play doubles. <laughs> <laughs> I learned politics at a young age, <laughs> um, and uh, great guy, Frank Veltry was his name, terrific guy. Um, but, uh, did that and, uh, learned about cash is King because I strung rackets and taught lessons, um, to the junior kids. And, uh, it was a, it was a fun run. Enjoyed it. Next question.
0: What was your first concert that you uh, went to,
1: you paid for it, not, not going yes. to see Helen, ready with your parents yeah no i did i i did i was taken uh by my parents my mom loved johnny mathis uh, but i did not pay for that <laughs> um let's see first concert would have been uh cheap trick uh at the sunrise musical theater down in fort lauderdale
0: that's a pretty good first concert
1: bunny carlos
0: Bunny carlos Performer. oh yeah Question three: If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would
1: you choose? Wow, um, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of options there. I, I actually, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go. With, I think I'll go a different route. I read. So when I was looking to make that transition from journalism to what I do now, and all my friends are saying you're you're too young to be having a midlife crisis, you know, go buy a motorcycle. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta read something to help me with this. And um, I was fortunate enough. Someone told me to read a book. I don't know if you're if you've heard of it. It's called Blue Ocean Strategy. And the the purpose uh, or the the purpose behind Blue Ocean Strategy it's about selling and marketing yourself and how basically a lot of folks and I'm going to oversimplify it, but the amateurs are all in this cutthroat world. So they're you know they're near the shoreline and they're chumming, and that's why it's all red and you know, muddy, and they're all competing for you know the lowest common uh, denominator, and it's just a miserable way to, to to go through building a business. Whereas if you just go out a little bit farther off the shore, now, granted, you're not standing on the the ocean floor anymore, right? There's some risk, mm-hmm. but the blue ocean, less competition out there, more opportunity to be successful. It's a it's a great book, and I apologize to the author for oversimplifying it because it's much more involved than that, but that, that was a book that helped me in making the transition when quite honestly, I didn't know what I was doing, getting into business from a journalism career. Number four, if you
0: could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose?
1: Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I've always, I've always liked space growing up in Florida with all the you know, the launches that used yeah. to happen at Cape Canaveral. And so that was always a part of my life seeing those things. They would always be carried on TV. So I guess I would say um, Apollo 11, you know, walking. And you were, you and were at North Carolina there. when the Challenger blew up. Yes. Correct. That was my senior was, year in high school. Yeah, yep. you were gone by then. I was in sociology class. I remember it well.
0: Last question. If you could chat, have dinner with anyone living today two hours off the record to talk about anything you want, whom would you choose?
1: So I might be going a different direction on this one too. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but um, I would say my dad, Robert. Um, my, uh, my dad passed away, unfortunately, when I was relatively young and um, just been out of college for a couple of years. And I'd love for him to see what I made of myself. And, uh, You know, hear about my wife and my kids and uh, that'd be, that'd be pretty special.
0: You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station. The McGinley's Golden Ace Inn and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Roger Harvey, former reporter at WTHR and currently a principal at the Bose Public Affairs Group, where he is the managing director of strategic communications and those titles don't do him justice. He is the absolute best at what he does he is someone I look up to, and I'm very lucky not only to call you a friend, but also to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you very much, Roger.
1: Thanks, Robert. It means a lot coming from you. I, I appreciate uh, our friendship.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's Robert at VeteranStrategies.com.